The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So... Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Kendra, for leading us in that. Thank you, Annie, for reading. Uh, thank you all for being here. And uh, I want to, yeah, just enter us into this time acknowledging that there's a lot in the, in the scripture that we read uh, this evening. Um, I'm going to acknowledge, as I have so many times during this series, that there are, there are concepts in there I just will not be able to, like, spend enough time on. Uh, that we kind of need to look at the big ideas here and plow into those, I think, to, uh, to understand this most deeply. So I understand there are things that won't be all worked out. Our English Bibles separate this uh, scripture into three paragraphs. Uh, Greek didn't really behave that way, um, but the Greek language in which it was written didn't really behave that way. But those, those themes of the three paragraphs are really, are really pr- pretty helpful. And that's kind of what we're going to look at this evening are the three themes of the three paragraphs. The first is the way of life that Christians are called to, uh, which is to serve one another, essentially. The second is the key effect that Christianity should have upon a community. uh, And that is what I'm calling a culture of hope. And the third is we get a structure for how to facilitate that way of life and that hope, how to bring those about within a Christian community. So way of life, a key effect, and a structure that gets us there. So that's, that's where we're headed. The way of life. 
Uh, this is written by Peter, who's one of the closest students of Jesus of Nazareth. He, uh, he was with him most of his ministry. He was one of the, the ones who was there for the most intimate moments, the most intimate teachings. He knew him very well, um, even to the degree that Peter was, um, was somebody who, who ran away, who betrayed Jesus in that he denied that he'd ever known him. And Jesus came to him, looked him in the eyes, and restored him. So Jesus and Peter um, weren't just, didn't just have the mere student-teacher relationship. Um, it went far deeper than that. Jesus had said to him, um, I call you friends. He had looked him in the eyes and forgiven him uh, and received him back after a deeply painful thing had occurred. Uh, they were very close. And Peter writes this. He said, the end of all things is at hand. This is one of those things I can't get too far into, but I'll just say there's an expectation of all the early Christians that they were going into the last key, um, key like segment of human history. Um, they didn't, wouldn't have known how long that was, but they believed very much they were going into the last era of human history. So that's what he means. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then he says, after that, above all, which, which must mean this next part is even more important than the urgency that they sensed in going into the last era of human history. It's above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I loved, by the way, when the reading was happening, how some of you responded with an amen right there. Um, it's, you get this little window into people's church background sometimes when those things happen. When, uh, when we were down in Mexico, I read the scripture, the the you know, the flower fade, the, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of, of the Lord endures forever. And it was just in the middle of my scripture reading, but when I said it instinctively, um, so for those of you who are with us down in Mexico, they all said, amen, right there. They just, that was like, they were like, I know what to say. And then I was like, oh wait, I, I was still reading. <laughs> so uh, that was cool. Three key things emerge from this scripture that every Christian should be known for. And by that, um, Peter meant that that people should be known for, each individual, but also the, the church as a group, that the community should be known for. Um, Christians should love one another. Christians should be hospitable. And Christians should understand their gifts and use them to serve. So love, hospitality, and service. Christians should be known for these three things. Unless you think that was simple then or would be now, I want to just dig a little bit deeper into those three things. Love one another earnestly, he says, because... Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what does that infer? Love will be despite and amidst, amidst the experience of being impacted by the sins of others. This is why sins are spoken of as being covered over by love here. It's not that you work over your own sins to cover them. This is a Christ-patterned moment where Peter is saying, you're going to need to cover the sins of others. Jesus and his love buried our sins for good. And we too, like Jesus, will be sinned against and love will cause us to forgive and cover over a multitude of other people's sins. 
Uh, Jesus' disciples once asked him how many times they needed to forgive somebody that sinned against them. And they said, up to seven times. And Jesus said something that gets, um, it gets translated a little differently depending on your Bible translation. But either way, it's shocking. Um, he says either um, add 70 or multiply by 70. Uh, so when they said up to seven times, imagine he said add 70. 77 times I'm going to forgive somebody? I mean, how, how many of us have been slighted by somebody and thought to, to yourselves, you know, if, I, if we did that about 76 more times, that wouldn't be so bad. I think I could let it go another 76. Now, what if he said multiply? Woo, that's even more. Now, at the bottom of Jesus' words were really an expression that meant something of an uncertain and indescribable amount of times. Kind of what he was saying was, there's not a limit. There's not a cap. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And then he went into a story about a servant who had been forgiven a massive debt and then refused to forgive someone who owed him just a little bit of money. And what was Jesus trying to say in telling that story? He was saying, I am forgiving your massive debt. You have no idea how much you owe me, how massive your debt is. And I love you. I will be forgiving it entirely. You deserve to pay for your shortcomings. Um, and to forgive means like that you're not going to require somebody to pay, pay back in any way. Jesus is saying, I, I will be forgiving you of your massive shortcomings. I won't require you to pay back a, a bit of it. So to love others who sin against you is to go out and offer the same thing that you've been given by God. What God has given to you, you will be offering to others. That's not easy. It's powerful, but it's not easy. Hospitality, that's fun, right? Um, having friends over for dinner. That's great. Except, oops, he says, without grumbling. Well, that, why would he bring that up? <laughs> right? Um, it, he must not just be talking about having your best friend over for dinner. Um, he seems to have something else in mind, like showing hospitality or open, opening your home up to or sharing with folks who you pr would prefer not to right now. When it is not life-giving or good for my mental health, Right? Those are the ways that we tend to say it today. And hear me, there's legitimacy to not being taken advantage of or pushing yourself too far. It's all motives matter. Last week's sermon was all about that. The motives matter. But a lot of the times we say these things, and the truth is we don't want our lives to be inconvenienced, difficult, or costly. And true hospitality, true hospitality is costly. It's taking someone in when they may be at their worst, it is entering into emotional complexity with people. It is giving what may never be repaid to somebody. Rod, a mentor of mine, said, you know you're hospitable when you haven't cleaned up the house or bought any groceries and someone needs to come over and you open your door. It's not when they get to see you at your best and they say, wow, good, good work. It's when, when they see you at your worst and you invite them in when you're at your worst. It's when you open up your space in life anyway. For me... One of the moments I, I encountered the deepest hospitality is I was going through the hardest time in my life. I was going through a divorce years ago. And people let me stay, or a friend stayed in my house. People had me in theirs when I had nothing to offer. When I was just a wreck. Okay. And then if, as if those two weren't enough, he brings up serving. And he adds another caveat, serve with the strength that God supplies, which infers, of course, 
that this is for the moments when you've run out of capacity to serve, when you need extra supernatural supply of strength to serve in such a way that would glorify God. This all is like over and beyond stuff. He's, he's speaking of the moments when we go beyond our capability, our limits, our desires, and he's asking for a lot here. He's saying true Christian community is when we push through all those boundaries and love, show hospitality, and serve beyond our limits. It's not all feel good. Don't get me wrong. It can be very rewarding. It is beautiful and sweet, but it isn't all pleasant, affirming, or life-giving. It's not. Now, that said, this is the flip side, it is deeply connected to who God made us to be. It will connect us to Jesus, our loving and serving Savior, deeply. He loves us more than we could ever imagine. He has served us in ways that were absolutely detrimental to all forms of his health. He's prepared a place for us. He's hospitable in the most profound ways. And Peter says that we have been given a gift by God. He has some kind of unique element of our, ourselves has been given by God that makes our relationships, our church, and our world more rich and more beautiful because each one of us is here. And the calling is to offer that gift to others. You have a gift. Bring your unique self to the table that nobody else quite brings. So it's a members meeting Sunday, and I sent around a quick survey to all of you. It's in your email. This is my reminder to you to do it. Um, and I know 30% of you open the emails, and then um, beyond, that's not bad, right? Andrew knows a little bit about it. It's, it could be worse. It's really, good. it's really good, yeah. So thank you. You're, all, you're doing very well. But the other, you know, 70% of you, um, go ahead and open that up at some point and fill it out, because we're looking in, we're looking for, for not right now, Zach. Let's, <laughs> let's do it after, after church. Um, If it has to be now, no. <laughs> um, but that's a little survey is trying to get at a little bit of the unique self that you are and what you bring. It's not perfect. It's short. It's simple. But we just want to get this little snapshot because we want to do a good job of helping to direct each one of us into what God has called us to do, into your sweet spot, because we know that each of us brings something absolutely unique. Um, I've never met another Mike Almaroth, right? I mean, we, we learned today about Chef Chic. I wasn't even going to bring that up. But I mean, I know other musicians, but I know other good musicians, to, to tell you the truth. But I've never met the good musician, soft-spoken, low-key scientist, most competitive, athletic, devoted, kind guy that's sitting back there before. I've never met another one, right? And the same is true of all of you. Like, I've never met another one of you. And you bring something incredible to the table. Each one of you brings a gift. Each one of you is a gift and what we learn, when we learn what ours is and we offer it, it is a beautiful thing. So this love, hospitality, service is hard, but it also brings out the deepest part of our gifting and our strength as a, as a people. Monty Williams, the uh, Phoenix Suns coach, you may have heard his little quote where he says to his team, everything that we want is on the other side of hard. And I love that quote because it doesn't ignore our deepest longings. There are things we want. You know, he's talking to athletes who are excellent at basketball, right? And he's like, you want to play and be amazing. You want it, you have the gift. Now, we're going to have to work incredibly hard together to do this. It's both. There's a gifting and, and yes, 
it is very hard to do. But Peter says it will glorify God. And, and don't you know that's what the human heart was made for? Our greatest joy comes when we are most aligned with our creator and doing what we were made to do for him and not just for ourselves. The Christian way of life is that we love, we're hospitable, and we serve. And it's not easy. It is hard work, but it glorifies God and it brings deep joy. So then Peter draws out, after he states that and he says amen, which is kind of a don't you all agree statement, um, he then draws out a key effect of the Christian faith and how it should shape God's people. This, this is more like the feel, like when you are among the people of God, this, you should sense this. And he says this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or evildoer, or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That's a part we don't have time to plow into. But here's the summary statement. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me just repeat that last line. This should be the experience that people have around Christians that we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while we do good. Let me be begin by saying, I, especially this week, have no right to scold any of you on this topic. Um, this past week, if I'm honest, I have not rejoiced in my trials very well. They weren't even fiery, I'm not gonna lie. They weren't even about my faith. Um, I have been mad at warranty companies. Um, I... <laughs> I have uh, been mad at myself for not getting sleep and for messing up a plane ticket real bad and losing money. And, uh, and that has stolen my hope and joy in moments. And that's not good. I, I have not arrived. I am not in any position to give you lectures. All I can do is look at this with you and ask God, what do we need to move in this direction? What do we need to do to move in this direction? So we can be the kind of people who could be deeply criticized and even publicly opposed, have a fiery trial come upon us, and who could be unsurprised and committed to doing good in the face of that experience. What would that take? And it's important, isn't it? When we look back as a church, and right now I'm speaking to us in our particular context. We are Americans in a Christian church. We're either in it, or willing to show up to it. So I'm going to talk to us. Um, we are a sliver of the church of all time and throughout the world, but here we are, and we know each other. And over the last few years, when you look at our collective witness and what people have experienced of us, we'd have to be honest and say, we have not been at peace. We have not been unsurprised. We got surprised, and we're anxious. Um, 
I, I listened to a podcast. Annie, thank you for sending it about pastors who've resigned. Um, yeah, and I was like, what, what are you trying to say, Annie? <laughs> no, um, no it, was, it, was really, it was really good. It was hard, it was hard to listen to because there were things where I was like, whew, that's, I see that. But there, there's been a lot of pastors that resigned, basically, in the last year. Uh, it's, it's a pretty high amount. And I've heard this from other places, and this was a story about one of them. And what, is it, what does it mean? What are they saying? They're saying that, that they're not saying, oh, the world outside tore me apart. They're saying it was, it was the church tore me apart. Um, there was no way I could make a right decision, I think, was like kind of one of the themes. There's no way I could make, like in other people's eyes, there's no way I could make a right decision. That says something about us. And it wasn't just people doing it to pastors, pastors doing it to each other. It, it said something about our state, the state of our hearts as God's people. And sometimes we very publicly have indeed suffered because we did evil. He, he, uh, he listed here, Peter listed, we shouldn't suffer for being, you know, murderers or meddlers um, or uh, evildoers. We have suffered for those things as a, as a group of people, actually. Especially in Jesus' definition of like murder, if you hate your brother, then, whew, we have. As opposed to suffering because we emulated Jesus, because we loved and served others and identified with Christ and were willing to die for others. Peter tells us here we should suffer for those reasons, not for the others. And why did that happen? Um, and what are we to do to address this? Well, the letter we're now finishing, and we, we've read it um, We've gone through it together as a church, but it's been over a long time. I've, I've been encouraging you all, and I will again, read the whole thing in one shot, read, maybe weekly um, would be a good idea. This is the best way to read the Bible. Um, but when you go back to the beginning of the letter, which we read early in the summer, the answer's there. Peter here is, he's pointing back to the, he's summarizing at the end, he's pointing back to the beginning. Here's what he said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a statement of blessing, of, of joy and peace and happiness. Um, so listen to why we should be filled with peace. According to his great mercy, he, Jesus, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory." Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice he doesn't say you'll get saved someday from really terrible things. He's saying you'll receive the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul right now, and you will experience this deep living hope because you're so sure of what God is going to do for you. Here's my summary of it. Christians should be so expectant of God's faithfulness and so filled with hope that nothing can diminish our joy. And that hope comes from that outcome that we know that we are safe. Salvation. We know we are safe. 
And that is anchored by the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is not always a feeling. Peter wouldn't have taught us to love while we covered sins and show hospitality without grumbling or serve because God was helping us if it were based on our emotional state. Hope is more than feelings. Hope is an expectation based on the faithfulness of God, God's ability, and God's love for us, which is why resurrection is tied to this hope. What do we see in the resurrection of Jesus? What's that have to do with it? In the resurrection of Jesus, we see God the Father's faithfulness to his son, that he didn't abandon him when he passed through the ultimate experience of sacrificing himself for others. We see God's ability to overcome death itself and make all things new. We see the love of Jesus for us, his willingness to enter into our struggle and prevail on our behalf. We see all those things. Hope sees that resurrection and assumes there's more where that came from. As God overcame death on behalf of his son and showed his power and his ability and his love, he will overcome the curse that brings trouble in our world. And it's as sure as the resurrection of Jesus. As God was able to raise Christ, he's able to redeem our world. As God so loved the world, he gave his only son that he and he, and he loves us enough that he will finish the work that he started. And when we have such hope, we can walk in peace and security through anything. Paul, unless you think this is me reading something into Peter, Paul, the most prominent writer about the life of Jesus, taught this to Peter's home church in Rome. And it, there's a, he said a lot. It's, it's the book of Romans. But here's just a couple snippets from Romans 8. Romans 8.18, and then I'm going to skip ahead to 31. Paul opens this section. He says, I consider, can you imagine saying this? I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Okay. He goes on and then he explains that a little more. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who would dare accuse us who God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. He's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Now, you might think, hard things do happen. Well, Paul anticipates that. He said, does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, if we're persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all of these things, overcoming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced, Paul said, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life or angels or demons or fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, if God is for us, nothing can shake us. So what does it mean when we are shaken? As I admitted, I dealt with this week, or, 
or worse, when we are turned upon because of our faith. It does not mean, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean the world got crazier. History exhibits it's been quite crazy, dare I say crazier, many times before. I was just, I watched a movie about World War II this morning. It was crazy. Crazy. It doesn't mean it's time to abandon Jesus' calling. This was several sermons ago. Do we return evil for evil? No. Jesus has called us to do the opposite. It means we need to return to hope in God. We need to return to the source of our hope or, or seek to find it for the first time and say, I don't have this hope. Where would I find it? The 42nd Psalm is a, is a great place to find words for this because it doesn't um, sugarcoat life. It starts out, um, as a deer pants for water, so my soul yearns for you. Some of us who grew up in church have a song in our heads playing right now. Um, yeah, and... Uh, and here's the trouble with that song. Um, John Seepin, one of a, a counselor here in town, um, he uses this in counseling, and he always prefaces by saying, a deer pants for water when they are being hunted. Here's why. Because a deer just, just running around in its natural habitat, it, it knows where the water is. It's not lost. It is running out of breath, doesn't know its surroundings because it's being hunted. The songwriter here feels forgotten and oppressed. They feel hunted. And then they, they say this, this line shows up twice in the 42nd Psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then the songwriter gives himself the answer, hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. See, hope isn't having a positive experience necessarily or even positive feelings. This psalm expresses the negativity. I'm, I'm in turmoil. It doesn't gloss over it. But negative feelings can be a signpost to us that we need to turn back to the, so, the source of our hope, to God. And hope anchors us back into an expectation that God is faithful, capable, and loves us. I was talking with some leaders in Phoenix because we were saying, um, the next election is going to be hard again. Right? It will. For our world. And we were talking about, so how do we prepare people for it? And we were, we were discussing the options. And, and we, we kind of came to like a dual option. I would say, when I look back on myself a couple years ago... I assumed one of these and I missed the other. We need, to, we need to prepare people for reality. I think to not talk about it isn't good. We need to talk about things that are going on. That I saw. But I assumed something about myself and all of us going into that time. I assumed that our hope was anchored in Jesus. And it was not. And so as we talked about it, this past week, we said we need to be proactively bringing people to the goodness of Jesus to prepare for the next round, right? We all need to do that. So the Christian way of life is love and hospitality and serving. The key effect of the Christian life is that we should have a culture of hope. People should feel it. 
If fear and retaliation are taking hold, if we're trying to escape or be defensive, it's because our faith is moving to another object, which was a previous sermon on idolatry that you could go check out. And it doesn't just happen like magic. It's, it clearly doesn't happen like that, right? We just don't poof, have hope, love, and serve others. Everything in our human experience pushes us and pulls us in opposing directions toward fear and selfishness, which is why the Bible and the wisdom of God stewarded through his people has always given us a structure to help us get there. It's not just words. It's not just hearing a talk. So here Peter says um, something about that structure. So I exhort elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, to you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word so at the beginning of this connects it back to the previous statement. So here's what you should be thinking. How do Christians entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good? How do they hold on to hope? Peter's answer is elders shepherd the flock. Younger people be subject to the elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility. Now, we have a members meeting after this, and I want to try to help clarify why we even have something called members. I kind of don't like the word. Um, basically, the, the word member is best understood in the metaphor of the body that comes out in Scripture. We are one body with many members, meaning members mean like fingers and toes and knees and elbows and stuff like that. Like everybody has a role. But often when I hear the word member, I think like member of a country club or like a subscription service, or something like that. Like, I'm a member, what are the benefits, right? And so the word isn't always helpful. But terms aside, there's this idea in the scripture that teaches that you should have a real belonging to a community of God's people. In many ways, it's assumed. Um, for example, here, the elders are to shepherd the flock. Well, as an elder, which I still sometimes go like, how did that happen? I turn 40 next week. How am I an elder? Well, look around. We need more old people. Can we can invite your grandparents? And then we'll improve that uh, ratio. But, um, but I, I'm an elder. Who's, my, who's in my pasture if, uh, in that metaphor? If I'm shepherding, who's in the pen? Who am I responsible to? who acknowledges me as their elder. I don't get to just assume that over somebody and just go like, ah, I am your elder. Listen to me. I'd, that'd be weird, right? Who am I responsible for? I must be responsible for people who have an understanding that that's the relationship, right? And one can only be subject or choose to submit to someone or a group of people that they have acknowledged that God has called them to be under the care of. So we have to say, Amidst whom am I growing in Christ? For what reason uh, am I here? So the core idea of being a member of a church is this. It's acknowledging that God has placed me here with these people to be a disciple of Jesus and that there's, a, there's an understanding of that. If you feel that way, you should be a member of the church. Um, we're still working, by the way, on a way to express a sense of belonging for people who are unsure about their faith. I think that's I want to see, I want to find a way to do that. 
But rather than work out every detail of what it means to be an elder, I want to show you why it matters. I want to, I want to give you a sense of why it matters, okay? Um, why not just be free form? Why not ditch institutions and just, you know, me and Jesus? Well, here's why. Institutions, um, which in a way this is, it's talking about a structure, they always seem very burdensome until you need them. Um, and then you often find it's quite worse to be out there on your own without them, without structures, right? You, nothing's worse than showing up to a, an institution and realizing it doesn't work very well. That's so frustrating. And usually the best institutions are one you didn't even know was there. You go like, oh, you planned this? You know? That's, that's great. Order and agreement seem like a hassle until you need to fall back on it. I could illustrate this in a thousand ways, but the best example I have was when I was at my worst. I, I mentioned I went through a divorce. You all must know that's not like the greatest idea for me to podcast about with our, you know, to put out there publicly, but it's true. I did. It was a time of total disorientation for me, very few positive feelings. And I was on staff at a church. Now, I thought at this time that my ministry career was entirely over. It was some of the most awful thoughts went through my mind that I'd ever thought in my entire life. I think I didn't think I was capable of feeling or thinking. I felt like I couldn't see a day ahead of me. I was a new dad. I had a mortgage I couldn't pay for. I was in the middle of a home renovation and everything was falling apart. And there, was, there were days when I was an extreme burden to everyone around me. I kept saying the same things over and over again. People slept at my house to keep me from doing stupid stuff. People hung out with me on my worst days and fed me. People served me when I had nothing to give back. I was living paycheck to paycheck. There were days when I was down to, to literally under a dollar in the bank account. I was emotionally exhausted and confused. People brought me food. They took me out. My friends threw me my first birthday party I'd ever had. They didn't, they didn't realize this. I'd never had a birthday party. Like more than, I had a friend spend the night. I'd never had a birthday party. During that time, I had my first one. Now, a key element here is I was, I was a first-time church member. That when I got that job, I became a member of a church for the first time. I'd been in churches, but I'd never been a church member. I'd never had elders before. And I look back at that time that this body of elders spent discerning me and my situation, how they, they had meeting after meeting. They calculated how to patiently engage with me. They led me through attempting to reconcile the situation, which, by the way, we have seen the need for that in a community here many times. It's not easy to do. They took responsibility for me. They were examples to me. One of them, one of the elders said, hey, when I was 26, I went through a divorce. I know how crazy it is. You're going to get through this. So I had somebody I could look at and go, okay, you, you lived. Maybe I can live too. And believe me, they didn't gain much for it. In fact, one of the biggest donors in the church, I happen to know, thought that they were wasting their time and money on me and making a bad decision and left because of me. I, was, I took up tons of time, and I was a major headache. And despite some of my tendencies, I had to be subject to them. I had to take their cues instead of acting on my own feelings. Here, I, who was becoming a young leader, had to step down and be utterly dependent and take their lead on how to do basic things in my life. 
And the result of that, there were so many results, but the result of that is to this day, I love that church. Um, Mike and Ray now work for that church as well. Cruz was poached from that church. We told him that. Um, Michaela and I met at that church and we were helped along by these people. Um, after a long time off, they, they brought me back into my role very slowly working with students and I still have relationships with some of them. I had a phone call with a couple last week who literally knew me when I was going through that. As kids, they watched that and then they came back into my life and were mutually encouraging to me. The story ended well. God was faithful. And it's because there were people who took responsibility to oversee and shepherd the flock. Really difficult people like me. God knows that life is hard. Trials, fiery trials are real. And sometimes we need to be shepherded. Sheep are a mess. Sheep stray off foolishly. They can be stubborn. We are all sheep. I am a sheep. Jesus is our chief shepherd and he loves us. He suffered for us. He calls some of us as unlikely as we are. People like Peter who would even turn on him and deny him three times, right? He calls people like that to then grow and learn his grace and shepherd others. Why? Because he knows we need it and sometimes we need it a lot. And this all has to be done for the right reasons. The best elder is just being an example of submitting to Jesus, who's able to say, I've been there, I've seen the faithfulness of God. Let me walk with you and point you back to hope. You'll notice here and in all Christian churches that the work of Jesus is necessary for everybody. No one ever outgrows it. Um, that's why the table up here, you'll notice after some of you take it, people like Mike and I serve each other the Lord's Supper like we are feeding on Jesus, the chief shepherd of our souls. An elder is one who's placed hope in Jesus for a long time and received his sacrificial love again and again, and they humble themselves. All of us are called to love one another, to be hospitable to one another, and to serve one another. And we all anchor ourselves in the same hope, so we all come to the same table, because here's why. Our elder... Our elder brother, Jesus, humbled himself and served and saved us. He came into our situation because God loved us so much. His hospitality has no bounds. Not only does he give us his body and his blood, his bread and his wine, he invites us to his table. He gives us his entire self and he prepares a place for us. He is our servant king. And we're bound together in one body, in his body, and that's why he calls us members of the body of Christ. So who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. We have hope because he died for us. And most of all, God was faithful to raise him from the dead. In him we have hope. So the call is to come and rest in him. We're going to take time right now to pray. There will be two minutes of silence and then the Lord's Supper will be served while we sing together, while we worship. If anything in this, uh, in this time has, has caused you to need to ask questions of God and Christ, now is a great time to do so. If there's any um, one of those sins you realize like, wow, how much Jesus has served me, speak to him about it, bring it to him. He's the most loving and forgiving. Um, he, he, in fact, this is how he states, he states it. 
He loves when you reach out to him for mercy. You don't have to hide. He's faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you can see that, if you're sensing hope deeply again in your soul, maybe just revel in it. Speak to him about it and thank him for it. So I'm going to pray, leave two minutes of silence, and then Mike will start leading us in, uh, in worship, and I'll, and I'll serve you from what Christ has done for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to be in this community with these people. Thank you for, for your body. Thank you that you have served all of us. I'm so grateful, God, that, that you, you don't sugarcoat life. You tell us it's going to be hard. You tell us that when we love each other, we're going to have to forgive a lot of sins, that when, we, when we're hospitable to one another, we're going to have to move past the grumbling, and when we serve one another, we're going to need your strength. You, don't, you, don't, you never cast it as like the easiest life ever, but you tell us that we can have a deep reservoir of hope because of what you've done, and those two realities ring true. Thank you for being honest with us. Thank you for your profound work on the cross. Thank you for loving us. And I pray that you would feed our souls on your grace, that we would sense and taste your goodness. So lead us now as we pray.